As we begin the message this morning, I want to give you some quotes from some of the most influential spiritual leaders in Christianity today. These are leaders from what has been called the faith movement or word of faith movement within Christianity. These are direct quotes. Here we go. Satan conquered Jesus on the cross. Quote, never, ever, ever go to the Lord and say, if it be thy will. Don't allow such faith-destroying words to be spoken from your mouth. Quote, God has to be given permission to work on this earth realm on behalf of man. Yes, you are in control. So if man has control, who no longer has it? God. Quote, Man was created on terms of equality with God, and he could stand in God's presence without any consciousness of inferiority. End quote. Commenting on these statements in his book, Christianity in Crisis, Hank Hanegraaff says this, If cultic and occultic systems like the New Age movement pose the greatest threat to the body of Christ from without, the deadly cancer represented by these quotes poses one of the greatest threats to Christianity from within. End quote. There is a book in the New Testament that was written specifically for the purpose of warning us about this kind of danger from within. It is the book of Second Peter, and it is the book that we want to consider in this message. So please turn with me in your Bibles over near the end of the New Testament to the little letter of Second Peter. The Apostle Peter wrote his first letter to address problems the Christians were facing from the outside. But this second letter, written around A.D. 66, was written to address problems from within. First, Peter explains how we should respond to external opposition. And second, Peter explains how we should respond to internal opposition. Namely, false teachers and false doctrine within Christianity. First, Peter deals with antagonism while 2 Peter deals with apostasy. 1 Peter instructs concerning hostility, while 2 Peter instructs concerning heresy. 1 Peter exalts godly leadership in 1 Peter chapter 5, while 2 Peter condemns false teachers, especially in chapter 2. Listen to this quote from the book, Talk Through the Bible. While 1 Peter dealt with submission to God as the proper response to suffering from without, 2 Peter concentrates on knowledge of the truth as the proper response to error from within. The words suffering in 1 Peter and knowledge in 2 Peter appear 16 times in various forms. End quote. So it is obvious just from the words that are used repeatedly in these two letters that the emphasis of 1 Peter is suffering, and the emphasis of 2 Peter is knowledge. However, it's not merely an intellectual knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge because it is truth applied to life and lived out in daily life. The book of 1 Peter speaks of the new birth through the living Word of God. Back up to 1 Peter chapter 1 for just a minute. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 
It says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. There, Peter affirms that we have been born again through the word of God. So the book of 2 Peter stresses the need for us to grow in the word of God. If we've been born again through the word of God, we need to continue growing in the word of God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. From 1 Peter 1 to 2 Peter 1, verse 5. It says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. Here we are exhorted to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. And again, I remind you, this is not merely an intellectual knowledge, not mere mental assent. It's an experiential knowledge because it's truth lived out in life. Look at chapter 3 of 2 Peter, right at the end of his letter, how he closes verse 18, says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is clearly the emphasis of this second letter. Peter's exhortation is for us to grow in the Word of God. You see, beloved, the best protection against false teachers and false doctrine is a mature, thorough, accurate knowledge of the Word of God. And let me tell you, there are a lot of false teachers today And they do pose a major threat to the truth of God's Word. For example, Kenneth Copeland, who is maybe one of the foremost leaders in the Word of Faith movement, says God is, quote, this is his direct words, God is a being that is very uncanny the way he's very much like you and me. A being that stands somewhere around 6'2", 6'3", that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred pounds, a little better, and has a hand span of nine inches across. That is blatant heresy to describe God that way. But that is the kind of thing that is taught in Christian circles today and is tolerated in Christian circles today. So we need to take a fresh look at the message of Second Peter. By the way, if you want more quotes and more documentation, then I strongly encourage you to read Hannah Graff's two books, Christianity in Crisis, and his work titled Counterfeit Revival, which both works document uh, just in great detail the heresy of this movement. So with all this as background, let's back up to chapter 1 to do our survey of this great book to see what the Lord would teach us. Second Peter chapter 1. Notice how it begins. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The introductory greeting sets the tone for the first chapter as well as the rest of the book. Here in verse 2, Peter expresses the fact that God's grace and God's peace are experienced through a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that is exactly what God wants us to experience in, in our lives. That's why he has saved us. Verse 3 says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Those verses are packed with marvelous truths about what God has done for us in salvation. But once God has saved us, He doesn't want us to stay in spiritual infancy. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants us to become discerning and strong in faith. And that's why Peter adds in verse 5, But, but don't forget this, also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge. Notice the phrase, giving all diligence, or however it's translated in your version. That basically means apply yourself to the task. Take it seriously. So let me ask you, does that describe you? Honestly? Are you diligent in pursuing your spiritual growth? Or do you just sit back and hope that it will happen somehow? The way some Christians approach, approach the Christian life with lethargy and apathy, it's no wonder they don't grow to maturity. Peter is telling us here in verse 7, Beloved, apply yourself. Give diligence to the issue of spiritual growth. Don't sit back and expect someone to do it for you. You do it. And that's what Peter is exhorting in these verses. He says in verse 6, To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. In other words, Peter is warning us, if you don't grow in your knowledge of the Lord and in your walk with the Lord, then you're going to become so spiritually lethargic that you're going to forget about the greatness of what God has done for you in salvation. Surely you've seen Christians like this. You know Christians like this. They are so spiritually apathetic that they no longer marvel at the wonder, wonderful forgiveness and salvation of God. Their joy and zeal for the Lord are gone. And what often happens in situations like that is that they begin to doubt their salvation or just forget about their salvation. That's why Peter adds the next verse. He says, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying here is when you grow in your faith, then that confirms the assurance of your salvation. When you don't grow like you ought to grow, then it leaves room for doubts in your mind. You see, it is not possible for a true Christian to lose his or her salvation, but it is certainly possible to lose the assurance of your salvation. Those are not the same. If you don't grow, then that allows doubts to creep in, if you don't grow, then that can make you forget about your salvation. That's why Peter says, make your calling and election sure. He is saying that we can be sure of God's 
calling of us and election of us when we grow spiritually and then we can have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord. We don't want to just go limping into heaven. We want to be rewarded by God's grace with an abundant entrance into heaven. And as a Christian who grows and is fruitful will have that, a Christian who grows and is fruitful will have that kind of entrance. That's what Peter wants for all who read his letter. He says in verse 12, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Peter was aware of the fact that he wasn't saying anything new. We don't always need to hear something new. There are many times we need to be reminded of what we already know because we aren't giving the proper attention to it, the proper focus to it. For example... You don't have to answer this out loud. But when was the last time you memorized a verse of Scripture? We all know how important the Word of God is. We all would say that. We would say, oh, it is vitally important. You know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's our life. That's our lifeblood. But it's very easy not to be diligent about it. When was the last time you got down on your knees and poured out your heart to God in prayer? You see, we all know how important prayer is, but do we practice it? That's why we need to be reminded of things often instead of always expecting to hear something new. Peter says, I'm just going to remind you of some things you know. And he says in verse 13, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir, up, stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter knew he was about to die. He knew it wouldn't be much longer until he was gone. That's why he wanted to write this letter, to leave these words as a reminder to all who would read his letter. He knew he wouldn't be around forever. So he points us to that which will be around forever, and that is the written word of God. He says in verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We're not following fairy tales, make-believe stories. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This, of course, is a reference to the tremendous experience that Peter had when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his second coming glory. And that must have been an amazing experience. I mean, try to think about what a mind-blowing experience that would be. But Peter goes on to say that there is something which is even more certain than any experience anyone could ever have and that is the Word of God. He says in verse 19, And so we have... Now the translations vary here. I'm just going to read it fairly literal. And we have the prophetic word which is even more sure than this, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Here in this verse, Peter is saying that the, the prophetic word of God, the written word of God, is even more sure than any human experience. Why is it more sure? Why is it more certain? 
Why is it more reliable than experience? Because it doesn't come from men. Verse 19 says, or verse 20 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or origin, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is telling us here is that the prophets did not initiate the writing of the Scripture themselves. The Holy Spirit, not the human emotions or circumstances, moved these holy men of God to write. That is why Scripture, beloved, is more sure than anyone's human experience. The Scripture is from God. It is the inspired Word of God. We can build our lives on it. It is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And let me tell you something, that is exactly why Satan wants to distort it and twist it and pervert it and confuse it with his false teachers. And that's what chapter 2 of this letter is about. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Notice the phrase, there will be false teachers among you. I am convinced that there are Christians who do not believe this verse. Why would I say that? That sounds shocking. Christians that don't believe a verse in the Bible? Why would Christians not believe this? There are Christians who refuse to believe that there are false teachers who like to be in Christianity to spread their false doctrine. The reason why I know there are Christians who refuse to believe this is because whenever I quote false teachers, as I did earlier in the message, or at other times, whenever I mention their names and expose them, I am accused of being unloving. Beloved, it is not unloving to warn against false teachers. It is not unloving to mention names and specific examples. Paul did. In 1 Timothy 1.20, he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander. In 2 Timothy 1.15, he mentions Phagellus and Hermogenes. In 2 Timothy 2.17, he mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus. In 2 Timothy 4.14, he mentions Alexander. He mentioned names, specific people. And Peter says here in verse 1, there will be false teachers among you. False teachers in Christianity, in churches, on Christian radio, with their books in Christian bookstores. So the warning needs to be sounded. Just as a side note on verse 1, it's interesting that Peter says that some of these false teachers will deny the Lord who bought them. Now, it's obvious from the rest of the chapter that these false teachers will experience the damning judgment of God in hell. There's no doubt about that as you read through this second chapter. Yet, here in verse 1, Peter says the Lord paid the price for their sins. He bought them. This is one of the strongest verses I know of in the New Testament supporting the doctrine of unlimited atonement. That is, that Jesus paid the price for all men, men and women. The death of Jesus is sufficient for all, but it is only efficient for those who believe. 
Even though the death of Jesus is sufficient for all, it is only efficient for those who apply its benefits or receive its benefits. But false teachers don't. They don't apply its benefits. They don't receive its benefits. In fact, some false teachers refuse to even believe that the death of Jesus Christ was a vicarious payment for our sin. I'm talking about false teachers of today. It's a very popular view of false teachers today that the death of Jesus was merely an example of selfless love. Now, there's no question that the death of Jesus was an example of selfless love. Amazing love. But it wasn't merely that. It wasn't only that, as false teachers will say. It was also, contrary to what they say, it was also a payment for our sin. It was a blood sacrifice for our sin. Jesus died as our substitute and took the wrath of God for us. But many false teachers today in Christian churches refuse to accept that biblical fact. They say it's archaic, it's barbaric to describe God as a God who requires a blood sacrifice and that somehow his wrath could be appeased through the blood sacrifice of his son. Therefore, they don't teach that and they will even deny it if you will pin them in a corner to ask them. Related to that, I'll never, I'll never forget something that happened several years ago here in our community. One of the professors at Montana Bible College gave some of the students in his class the assignment of going around to various Christian churches in our community to interview the pastors or the ministers or the priests or vicars or whatever they're they're called in their particular denomination. And the students were given a list of several basic questions to ask these ministers. They were told to be very respectful, to set up an appointment, say it would be brief, and and to not at all be condescending or argumentative. Just go in and say, I have a survey for a class, and I want to ask you some questions, please. And so the students did this. And they were given a list of the questions they had to ask. Questions like, do you believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God without error? Do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus died as our substitute and took the wrath of God for us? Do you believe in the literal bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Those were the kinds of questions that students asked the pastors, the ministers, the vicars, the priests, whatever, in their survey. Questions that you and I don't even give any thought to. It's just very obvious to us. We would say yes to all of those. The students returned from this assignment in total shock. They couldn't believe that the pastors, ministers, priests, whatever in these churches would answer no to some of those questions. But they did. What an eye-opener it was for the students. I can still remember talking with some of them after that assignment. They were in utter disbelief at the answers they heard. And you would be too. If you would go around the city and ask pastors, ministers, priests, vicars, whatever, some of those kinds of direct pointed, specific questions about their beliefs regarding Scripture. The words of verse 1 ring loud and clear. There will be false teachers among you. There will always be false teachers in Christianity. And these false teachers occupy, occupy positions. Heads of seminaries, heads of Bible colleges, heads of churches. 
Verse 2 says, And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Don't miss the word many. Many people flock to false teachers today. It's one of the things that makes it so difficult to say anything about them. When you do, you get hammered by people who like the false teachers, who think they're nice and they're kind and they're, they're, they're gracious. And sadly, some of the people who think that way are sincere Christians. Very sincere Christians. They are sincere Christians, but tragically, they lack discernment. False teachers who pose very well as truth teachers may confuse people, but they don't confuse God. They will clearly, definitely be judged. Verse 3 says, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Notice that Peter says they use deceptive words. That's very, a very helpful insight from Peter. What he's telling us is that false teachers know how to use the right terms. They, they know how to use the right phrases, terminology. They talk about God. They talk about Jesus. They talk about the Holy Spirit. They talk about the Word of God. They talk about salvation. But listen, listen. Their definitions are not the same as the definitions found in Scripture. That's why they are so deceptive. That's why so many people don't recognize them. Because they use the same terms. They deceive people, but they don't deceive God. They don't fool God. He will judge. Verse 4 says, uh, Verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who oppressed, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, now that's all an introductory statement to Peter's point. If God did all of this in the past, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. There's a key phrase in verse 10 that we dare not miss because it strikes at the heart of the problem of false teachers. It is the phrase that says they despise authority. Beloved, that, that says it. That sums it up. False teachers despise God's authority or the authority of God's word. They say the Bible isn't completely the word of God. Sure, some of it's the word of God is what they will often say. But not all of it. You can't believe things like a big boat and eight people on it and a worldwide flood or a guy being swallowed by a big fish or those types of things. We've we got to be, you know, scientifically sophisticated today. You can't believe all of the Bible. 
Some of it's merely the thoughts of man, the opinions of man. Or they twist the Scripture and use it for their own purposes instead of submitting to its authority. They despise authority, Peter says. They refuse to yield to authority. They, they basically set themselves up as the authority because they determine what in the Bible is the Word of God and what is not. So they are the authority, not God's Word. That is at the heart of the problem. Having said that, Peter launches into a scathing description of false teachers and their certain judgment. I'm, I'm going to simply read this without comment. Verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried about by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever." For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after having escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning." For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Those are some of the strongest words in the Bible. And they are spoken of false teachers who deceive people with their misleading Christian words. Yet they themselves refuse the absolute authority of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. As we move into chapter 3, Peter begins to apply these, con these concepts specifically to us as believers. One of the foundational teachings of Scripture that false teachers often deny is the coming worldwide judgment associated with the physical, literal, bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter turns his attention to that issue. Notice how he does in chapter 3. <clears throat> he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly forget, 
that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now basically what Peter is saying here in this section is that these scoffers who say that God is not going to intervene in the affairs of man, we don't need to have all this talk about judgment. Just talk about the love of God and the grace of God and the peace of God. Don't talk about judgment. They willingly ignore the fact that God has already proven that he will unleash a worldwide judgment by virtue of the fact that he judged the world with the flood during Noah's day. But of course... Many of the false teachers who deny a future catastrophic judgment from God also deny a worldwide flood during Noah's day. Shouldn't surprise us. But when God says he is going to do something, his word is certain and dependable. He said he would judge the world in its entirety by a worldwide flood. He did that. He has said throughout his word that someday there is coming a catastrophic judgment on this entire world, and it is certain that it will take place. When God says something, it is certain. Peter illustrates this fact by pointing to creation. The creation of this world took place by God's word. The creation of this universe took place by God's word. He spoke and it was. Therefore, when God says he is going to judge this world by the second coming of Christ, it is going to happen. So Peter says in verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He hasn't forgotten about His promise. He hasn't reneged on His promise. No, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, Peter says God is going to judge this entire world, but He hasn't already judged this world because He is patient. And he is allowing more people to repent. Isn't this the tension that we all feel in our minds? What I mean is, there is a side of us that says, as John did at the end of the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Just come. Come, stop this world. Just stop. Intervene. Bring your judgment. And then on the other hand, we think, yeah, but there are so many people who need to repent. So, Lord, give time. Give more time. It's the exact tension we feel. This is what Peter is saying here. Judgment's coming. It is coming. But God is patient. He's allowing more people to repent. But don't mistake that. Don't assume that means judgment uh, won't come. It will come. So in verse 10, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come. And that's a phrase used throughout Hebrew Scripture. The day of the Lord. It's primarily a day of the Lord's wrath. It will come. As a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And here Peter brings his teaching to the point of personal application for you and for me. He is basically saying this, in light of the fact that this world is not our eternal home, we should live accordingly, live our lives based on the next life, live lives of holiness, lives of godliness. He says in verse 12, 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. This is very similar to what the Apostle John says in 1 John. He exhorts us to abide in Christ, 1 John 2.28, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. That's basically what Peter is saying here. Just abide in Christ, live for him. What you don't want is to be a Christian who's not living the way you ought to be living, and Jesus comes back, and then you stand before him and you're ashamed at the way you were living. Live in light of eternity. Live with the eternal perspective. Verse 15, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. That's almost a humorous verse, isn't it? Don't you agree with Peter that some of the things Paul talks about in his letters are hard to understand? Ever been in a Bible study on Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, saying, what in the world is Paul talking about? Well, you're in good company. Peter didn't know either, at least not all of it. So be encouraged when you study Paul's writings that even Peter had a hard time understanding some of them. So we're not alone. Verse 17, Peter says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know what's coming. God has told you what's coming. Since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. This was Peter's main concern for writing. That's it right there. Verse 17. This this is what prompted him to write this letter. He knew he wasn't going to be around much longer, so he wanted to leave these words in print as an exhortation for us to remain steadfast and not to be led astray from God's word by false teachers who sound good, who sound Christian, but aren't true to God's word. And beloved, let me tell you something. It happens. It happens. Don't assume that it can't happen. Sincere Christians... Sincere Christians are often led astray by very popular false teachers on television, on the radio, in Christian bookstores, in conferences. So be careful, Peter says. Be discerning. Be like the noble Bereans who searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were true. Stay in the Word. Stay true to the Word. And that is exactly how Peter closes his letter. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. You know, some Christians downplay knowledge. They quote 1 Corinthians 8, 1, which says knowledge puffs up. And they try to use that verse to minimize the importance of knowledge. They say that the only thing that is important is love, or the only thing that is important is the application of truth. Well, certainly, the application of truth to our lives is extremely important. 
Certainly it is. But let's not underestimate the importance of knowing God's truth as a protection against false teachers and false doctrines. False teachers and false doctrines are very damaging. And please hear me. They're not only damaging to the world out there, to non-Christian people. They are damaging to believers. So Peter ends his letter and basically ends his life by exhorting us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Are you growing in your walk with the Lord? Or have you stagnated? Are you growing in your knowledge and understanding of God's truth? Or have you put your study of God's word on cruise control? Those are the issues we have to face and respond to as a result of our exposure to this great little letter called Second Peter. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow our heads in closing this morning, take just a couple minutes to think about what you have seen and heard in God's Word. This letter is, for lack of a better way to say it, kind of a dark letter, negative. It's not pleasant, but extremely important, especially in our day and age. So think about what you've heard and how you should respond to it as a believer. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never received Him, then you need to submit to Him. You need to surrender to His authority, the authority of what He says in His Word. And He says in His Word that the only way you can be right with Him is through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're here today and you're not right with God, you're, you're not submitted or surrendered to God. Turn to Jesus Christ in humble repentance, simple childlike faith, and receive Him. Come to know Him. Come to love Him and begin to grow in Him. Father, as we close our time together this morning, we do so with thankfulness that You saw fit by Your Holy Spirit to guide the Apostle Peter near the end of his life to pen this powerful letter. It was obviously one that was very relevant to his day and age, but as is the case with all of Scripture, it's very relevant to us in our day and age. When false teachers abound under the umbrella of Christianity, when false teachers who refuse to hold to the accuracy of your word, the authority of your word, we need clear instruction, clear understanding of how to respond and how to view these things and just, just how to relate to the day and age, the times in which we live. So thank you for the message of Second Peter. May it strengthen us, encourage us, grant us wisdom, grant us discernment. And in closing, we pray for anyone who is here with us this morning who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and isn't right with you, Father. May your Holy Spirit bring about conviction, enlightenment, understanding, the need to repent, to let go of whatever is holding back, and turn to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. We pray these things in his precious and magnificent name. Amen.